0: Hello, I want to welcome you to the Point Church Alberta Campus Sunday Preaching Podcast. My name is Josh Heisler, and I'm the Alberta Campus Pastor. We strongly believe in the expositional preaching of God's Word, which works to build our faith and grow us up in Christ. Our prayer is that this message will be a help to you on your journey of faith. Now join us as we get to the point. Today, we're continuing our series in the book of Hebrews, which we've entitled, Jesus is Better. So last week, as we finished up chapter 7 and we moved all the way through all of chapter 8, we talked about our need to have a change of perspective in order to fully grasp the reality that Jesus is a better high priest than the Levitical priesthood, and that he brings in a better covenant for us. And and as we looked at that new and better covenant that Jesus brings in, my, my goal was that we would recognize that, that it was better because it is initiated, it is maintained, it is completed by God himself. The, the new covenant isn't dependent on us. We don't have to make it happen. God does all of the work. He brings the covenant to completion through the life, death, burial, and resurrection of his son, Jesus. That's what we saw last week. But this week, as we move into chapter 9, we're going to encounter what I would contend is the major implication of what we saw last week. You see, if Jesus is a better high priest and he brings a better covenant, a covenant that results in our eternal redemption before God, a covenant that's brought to completion by Jesus himself, then there is a claim of exclusivity there that we just can't pass over. We need to look at that. And today, our author is going to address that claim. You see, the implication of what we saw last week is that Jesus is the only path to redemption. The Levitical priesthood, the old Mosaic covenant, it couldn't do it, but Jesus has done it. And so that will be our big idea for today. As we're looking at this text, our our, our one takeaway as we look at this text is that Jesus is the only path to eternal redemption. So with that in mind, hopefully you're there. Hebrews chapter 9, we're going to begin at verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the second section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of Reformation. But when Christ appeared as the high priest of the good things that have come, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Lord God, as we look at this text today, we ask that you would be at work in our hearts and our minds, that we would see that... that Regardless of what the world might want to tell us, regardless of what everyone around us might say, there is only one path to be redeemed, to be in your presence, to be reconciled to you, and it's through your son, Jesus. Would you help us to see that as we look at this text today? Would you help us to stop trying to walk down other paths, but keep us on the narrow path that leads to life? We need you to do that for us today. We're desperate for you to do that for us today because we can't do it on our own. We, we need your help. And so, Holy Spirit, I ask that you would help us right now. If there's someone here today that doesn't know you as Lord and Savior, we ask that they would come to know the freedom and joy that is available in your Son. Be at work in here today, Holy Spirit. It's in your beautiful name we pray. Amen. Back in 2009, while I was on deployment on the USS Nimitz, our ship pulled into Yakuska, Japan for a port visit to have some liberty, to have some time off. Yakuska is about an hour south of Tokyo, if you're not familiar with, uh, with Japan, and, and so all of the officers in my squadron decided that's where we would spend our liberty. We, we got on a train and took the train up to Tokyo. We got a hotel, and one night while we were at a Tokyo Giants baseball game, we decided that it would be a really good idea to go climb Mount Fuji the next day. We did not think that through fully, but we, we went back to our hotel after the game, went to bed, and after about four hours of, of sleep, we got up at 3.30 in the morning to head to the train to go down to the mountain. Now, as I said, we didn't really plan well, so on our trip from the hotel to the train station, we stopped at a corner 7-Eleven. Yes, they have 7-Eleven in Japan, and and we purchased a a few bottles of water each, a few packs of of, uh, trail mix or, or snacks of sorts. We threw them in our backpacks. We went to the train station, got on the train, and at about 6.30 in the morning, we arrived at the base of the mountain. 6.30 in the morning is when we started our hike up the mountain. We got on that trail, we started going, and and let me tell you, it was not easy. It it was a challenge of a climb to get to the top, and and lucky for me, the six weeks leading up to that port visit, I had been on the elliptical on the ship every single day, just kind of 45 minutes a day getting a workout in, and so I managed to get to the top of the mountain about an hour before the rest of the people in my group did, and I just sat there and waited for them. Um, But even with that advantage to get to the top of the mountain, uh, it still took me about eight hours to get from the bottom to the top. And, and once we were at the top of the mountain, we started talking to all the other tourists because that's about the only people that climb Fuji these days uh, who are at the top of the mountain. And it was only then that we realized that of the four trails that go up to the top of Fuji, the Gotemba Trail, which is the one that we had chosen, was by far the longest and most difficult trail. They we, we decided, you know, at this point, the best thing to do is probably take one of the shorter, easier trails back down the mountain. And so we did. But even with that faster trail down, because it had taken us so long to get to the top, we ended up coming down the mountain in the pitch black. Like, there was no moon. We had no flashlights. This is before the days of an iPhone flashlight where you could turn it on. Like, like, it was dark. I don't know how we got down the mountain without a serious injury. And so we get down to the bottom of the mountain and all of the local businesses at this point, they're all closed. It took us an hour to find a cab back to the train station. When we finally got to the train station, the only train left was of course the most expensive one, the bullet train. So we get on the bullet train, go back to Tokyo. We get back to our hotel sometime after midnight, completely exhausted. Now the the moral of that story is there are multiple paths to the top of Mount Fuji. And which path you choose to take makes all the difference in the world. Now, now, when we come and we gather at church and we start thinking about eternity, there, there may be people who say the same kind of thing. Hey, there are multiple paths to get to God. There are multiple ways that you can get to God. But that simply isn't true. And, and as we look at the text today, we're going to address that, that claim This text is going to tell us that there is only one path to eternal redemption, and that path is Jesus. Jesus is the only path to our eternal redemption. It is He is our only path to get to God. It may seem at times like there are other ways to earn the righteousness, to earn the holiness, that God's holiness, that God requires of us, but those paths, they lead to dead ends. There's only one path. And it makes all the difference for our eternal security. That's our big idea, as I told you for the the day, as we look at this. And and our author is going to use a sort of stepping stone approach to get us to see that. He's going to start with something that's very familiar to his Jewish Christian audience. And he's going to build up to show them that Jesus is the only way. So he starts by talking about the tabernacle. The, the tent that served as, as the, their place of worship before the, temp, before the uh, temple was built. And, and the whole point of what he's getting at in this first chunk of scripture is that the tabernacle was very busy. It was an incredibly busy place. Take a look, starting at verse one. Now, even the first covenant had regulations for worship and an earthly, earthly place of holiness. For a tent was prepared the first section in which were the lampstand and the table of the bread of the presence. It is called the holy place. Behind the second curtain was a second section called the most holy place, having the golden altar of incense and the altar of the covenant, excuse me, the ark of the covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden urn holding the manna and Aaron's staff that budded and the table tablets of the covenant. Above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the mercy seat. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail, worry not we're going to. Nothing? You could, oh, I knew I shouldn't have used that. <laughs> There's a laugh. Okay, you guys are with me. Of these things, we cannot now speak in detail. These preparations having thus been made, the priests go regularly into the first section, performing their ritual duties, and, and we need to stop right there. And, and I need you to see the picture that's being painted right here. The, the, the tabernacle is being described as this incredibly busy place. They, they go in, and they have to set it up, and once they set it up, the priests go to work. It, it, it was all prepared, and then every single day, they're at work. Every single day, there's something going on. Every single day, there are sacrifices being made. There were daily burnt offerings. There were daily grain and drink offerings. Each morning, a lamb had to be sacrificed. And after it was sacrificed, the priest would go in and he would trim the wicks of the lamps in the holy place. He would offer incense on the altar. Every evening, another, a second lamb was offered. And then they would go in again and they would trim the wicks of the lamps. They would offer more incense on the altar Every Sabbath, two additional lambs were offered in addition to the two daily lambs. And, and they would go in and they would change the 12 loaves that, that constituted the bread of the presence. And on top of all of that, that's just the, the, the routine, that's the regular, on top of all of that, there were the personal offerings. People would, would, who had sinned would bring in uh, they, their burnt offerings and their sin offerings. They'd bring in guilt offerings and peace offerings. All of them, because they'd failed to keep the law in some area, they, they had violated God's rules for their life. They had to bring these offerings, and it was just constantly happening, nonstop, day after day, hour after hour. Like, like what that would look like for us today, is imagine if Nathan and I were here at the church 24/7, 365, and we're just having a continuous altar call that never ends. And so one day you're driving home from work, and as you're driving home from work up here on 98, maybe the car in front of you is going kind of slow, and so you decide to pass them, and you're frustrated because you're hungry, and you know that hangry thing you get about 4:30, 5 o'clock in the afternoon. And, and as you're passing them, maybe you give them the one finger hello, and, and and then you then you get home, and you're like, man, what was I thinking? You get that Snickers bar, you're feeling better, you feel guilty about the fact that you gave them that that, that little hello as you passed them on the road. And so you come down here to the church to our 24-7 altar call. And there's this line that goes down this aisle, wraps around the building, and you just get in line and wait your turn to come down to the altar and pray. That's kind of like what was happening right there. There's this constant activity. The, The tabernacle was crazy busy, Daily and weekly rituals, personal offerings constantly happening, all this motion, all this activity, and they never even got to be near to God. They they never entered into the most holy place where where God's presence, where his Shekinah glory, where he was on earth, that most holy place. They never got to go in there except one guy once a year. That's what we see in verse 7. Our our author's been talking about the outer section of the tabernacle, the holy place, and now he's going to talk in verse 7 about the most holy place. He says, but into the second, that's the holy of holies, only the high priest goes, and he but once a year and not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the unintentional sins of the people. What he's talking about here is the day of atonement. The day of atonement, according to Leviticus 16, happens in the 10th day of the 7th month of the Jewish calendar, which puts it right around the fall equinox every year. So, so late fall, when, when the day is equally day and night, right? The, the equinox. The, the first thing that he had to do was, as he went into this holy of holies place, which he only got to do once a year, was he'd put on these special garments, these special linen garments that were made just for that day. And then he would sacrifice a bull for his own sin and for the sin of his family. And he would take some of that blood from that bowl that they sacrificed into the Holy of Holies and he would sprinkle the mercy seat seven times with the blood of that bowl. He would then walk out of the Holy of Holies through the, the holy place, back out to the altar outside and they would sacrifice a goat for the sins of the people. And then he would take some of the blood from that goat, and he would walk back in all the way to the Holy of Holies. And again, seven times, he would sprinkle that blood onto the mercy seat. Once the atonement ritual inside the most holy place was completed, he'd walk out, and there was actually a second goat standing outside. And he would go, and he would place his hands on that second goat, and he would pronounce and confess the sins of the people of Israel. And then they would take that goat, that scapegoat, and they would lead it out of the camp, out into the wilderness, and release it into the wilderness. And the goat, symbolically, was carrying away the sins of the people. That's the scapegoat. That's where we get that term for today. And and our author doesn't even mention the second goat, primarily because he's focusing on the rituals inside the tabernacle. He's he's focusing on the fact that even with all the busyness that was going on in the tabernacle, nobody got to enter into God's presence except once a year and then only one guy from one family. Even with all this busyness, there was a problem. Even with all of this going on, There wasn't something quite right. And that's what our author is gonna get to in verses eight through 10. Take a look starting at verse eight. He says, by this, that's by the fact that only the high priest got to enter into the Holy of Holies and only once a year and only with certain rituals performed. By this, the Holy Spirit indicates that the way into the holy places is not yet opened as long as the first section is still standing, which is symbolic for the present age. Now, I know we need to pause right here in the, in the middle of verse 9 because we're at a major stepping stone in our author's argument, in what our author is trying to teach us. He's saying that the Holy Spirit's revealing that the tabernacle and, and all of the ceremony and all of the things that are going on in the tabernacle, contrary to what they thought, they're not granting them access to God, they're actually keeping them separated from God. And so he continues, and and he's going to explain why that's the case. He says, according to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. The problem in in a nutshell, the, the reason why they didn't have access to God is that the tabernacle didn't work. That, that's the problem. All of these sacrifices, all of these ceremonies and rituals, all of these rules that they, about what they could do and what they could eat, about how they could cleanse themselves, they only dealt with the outside. They didn't deal with the inside. They couldn't perfect the consciences of the people. You see, the, the people had missed out on the fact that everything about the tabernacle... Everything about what they were doing, everything about the law, in a sense, it was meant to be a symbol of something greater. It was meant to show them something more. It dealt with external purity in order to teach them about internal purity. And they missed it. They completely missed that. They thought that all that external purity was the point. They thought all of those ceremonies were the point, They they missed the fact that all of that external purity was a symbol to show them what internal purity ought to look like. And so because they missed that, they had elevated the symbol to a status of being sacred. They thought that ritual worship was how they got to enter into communion into communion with God, but, but in fact it was keeping them away from God. Because they were only dealing with the outside. They didn't deal with the inside. And and so often we do the same thing, we we do the exact same thing. We we'll be struggling with some particular sin, and and we'll know that that sin is a problem. And so we're going to set up some some rules, some roadblocks, some barriers that will help protect us, that will keep us on the path, that will keep us from doing that sin one more time. We we have those rules, and 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 we never actually drill down to the source of our problem. And what ends up happening over time is that. Sooner or later, all of those rules go by the wayside. All of those barriers, they they fall over. All of those safeguards, they they fail us. And we end up right where we began, Or, or maybe even worse, because we never dealt with the sin at the heart of the problem. We just wanted it to deal with the external problem and not get to the inside. And the Israelites, they were doing the exact same thing they they would go and offer their sacrifices day after day, year after year, but they, they kept on sinning. None of their sacrifices could p- fix their problem, and, and so they sinned more, and, and the sacrifices they just had to keep on coming day after day, year after year, sacrifice after sacrifice. And over time, those sacrifices became what was important to them. The, the meaning behind them got lost. The sacrifice, the whole ritual of the tabernacle, which was a symbol of something greater, became the most important thing to them. They had elevated the symbol to sacred status. And when they did that, everything got off track. And before we're too quick to judge these people, we do the same thing all the time. Like like when I was a kid growing up in church, we had to wear our Sunday best to church, right? You know what I'm talking about there. Like, like for me, that meant that I had to wear slacks and a collared shirt that mom probably had to iron for me because I couldn't do it. And, and some shoes that were very uncomfortable to wear. And, 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 and on, Sunday, or on like Easter Sunday and Christmas, the high holidays, I had this little suit with a bow tie. There's embarrassing pictures out there somewhere of me wearing that stuff, right? You guys know what I'm talking about, right? We had to wear our Sunday best to church, but over time that started to change. Do you, do you remember like some of the controversies that happened when that started changing? Like people got in an uproar about that. People who were Christians would chase other people out of the church because of what they were wearing to church. They were like, you're not wearing your Sunday best to church. You got to dress up to go to church. You got to bring God your absolute best to church. And you know what? They were right. We do need to bring our best to God. But clothes were just a symbol. They weren't what was most important. And in many churches, and and honestly for many Christians, that symbol got elevated. That became what was most important for them. And a lot of harm was done to the gospel because of that. A lot of people were chased out of the church who needed to hear the good news that we have because we cared more about what they were wearing than what was going on in their heart. Listen, my best is not the clothes that I wear. I think we understand that today. My my best is a heart that's prepared to worship. My best is a heart that is open to the word of God. My best is a heart and a mind that wants to be transformed into the image of Jesus. Jesus we had elevated the outward look to a sacred status. So you need to hear me on this because sometimes we still do this, the same thing today, only in reverse. We, we'll, we'll stand here with jeans and, and a shirt on and we'll, we'll say, hey, if that guy's wearing a suit to church, that means he's old fashioned. That means he's legalistic. He, he doesn't actually care about the heart. And what we're doing in that moment is the same thing that they were doing to us it's not about what you wear on the outside. You've got to hear me on this. It doesn't matter what clothes you wear to church. What matters is that you come here with a heart prepared to be changed by the gospel. If a suit and tie helps you to worship the Lord, wear a suit and tie. If jeans and a t-shirt Help you to worship the Lord. Wear jeans and a t-shirt because it's not about your clothes. It's about your heart. Don't make the symbol sacred. That's what they were doing. The, the people of Israel thought that God wanted them to bring just their sacrifices every day. They thought that they want, he wanted them to hold these solemn assemblies, to celebrate the festivals, to make offerings in order to be right before God, but they had missed the fact that all of that outward religion was a symbol meant to point them to something greater. None of that could actually clear their consciences, but they missed that. And because they missed that, the tabernacle didn't work. And that wasn't just a problem for those first century Jewish Christians. That's a a problem for us today. It's been a problem all the way back through all of Israel's history. Really quick, grab your Bibles, flip back to Amos chapter 5. Amos chapter 5, if you're using one of the church Bibles, it's on page 768. The Lord is speaking to his covenant people through the prophet and he says to them, listen to this, I hate, I despise your feasts and I take no delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I will not accept them and the peace offerings of your fattened animals, I will not look upon them. Take away from me the noise of your songs to the melody of your harps, I will not listen. Think about that for a second. Did you know that in the entire Bible, there are only six places, six places where God says, I hate something. There's six places in the entire Bible where God says he hates something. They're always talking about sin. And right here in Amos chapter five, he's saying, I hate the things that I commanded you to do in Leviticus 23. Why is that? Why does he hate the very thing that he commanded them to do? It's because they missed the fact that the whole thing was a symbol meant to point them to something greater. It was meant to point the outside to the inside. That's why he continues. If you read on to verse 24, he says, but let let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. He didn't just want them to go through the motions. He didn't want them to do the celebrations and have the sacrifices. He wanted them to see those celebrations and those sacrifices pointing them to a life changed by his good news. They were there to teach them something, not, not just to do them. And it's the same thing with us in here today. Like, like you, you read a passage like Amos chapter 5 and, Could you imagine God saying that to us? I hate your Sunday gatherings. I hate your worship. I hate those songs that Nathan's leading you and singing. I don't want to hear them anymore. Just stop. Let's never be like that. Let's never elevate the symbol to sacred status. All of the things that we do here on Sunday are meant to teach us what it means to be in communion with God the songs we sing, the the scripture we read, the prayers we pray, the fellowship that we have as we gather together as a church, all of that is meant to point us to something greater. It's not about us right here, right now. But, But we miss that sometimes. Watch out. Let's be aware of that. We're not the only ones that miss it, though. Those Israelites had missed it, too. The early church had missed it, apparently. So back in Hebrews chapter 9, our our author drives the point home and and says that all of this ritual, all of these symbols, they cannot perfect the conscience of the worshiper. The, The barrier between men and God wasn't the curtain that divided the holy place from the most holy place. The barrier was a conscience that knew the weight and the burden of our sin And all of those old rituals and all of those sacrifices could not remove that barrier. The British theologian Frederick Bruce noted that it is only when the conscience is perfected that we are set free to approach God without reservation and offer him acceptable service and worship. And the sacrificial blood of bulls and goats is useless in this regard. Animal sacrifices and other material ordinances which accompanied it could affect at best a ceremonial and symbolic removal of pollution, but they could not cleanse our consciences. And so you can see that for all of its worth, for all that it brought, the tabernacle just didn't work. And if that is where our author stopped talking, we'd have a pretty big problem on our hands. If that's where he quit, we'd be kind of done at that point, but thankfully, he doesn't. Thankfully, he keeps on talking, and as he does, as he keeps on writing, he uses what I tell my daughters is my favorite word in the entire Bible. It's that three-letter word, but... He's telling us all this bad news. And then, then he says, but, and then he keeps talking. And I love that word. It's my favorite word because so often in the Bible, it moves us from, from hopelessness into hope. And that's what we're going to see right here in verse 11. He says, but when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all the living God. I don't don't know that there are two better sentences in all of Hebrews than what we saw right there. We've just read that all of those rituals, all of those things that the church was doing, none of it worked. None of it was gonna be effective to bring us to God. We've just read in verse 10 that all that it did was deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. All of, all of that stuff that happened at the tabernacle, all of the worship, all of the sacrifices, they dealt, they, they, they were temporary. They, they dealt with the outside. They, they didn't fix the problem. They couldn't fix the inside. They couldn't clear our conscience of the weight of the sin that was weighing down on us. That path, it turned out to be a dead end, but then Christ stepped in as our new and and perfect high priest. He's the high priest of the good things that have come, and what we're seeing there is, is verse 11 is telling us that Jesus is the high priest of the Reformation that verse 10 was looking forward to. He's brought this reformation, this this change of how we're going to approach God, of how we're going to enter into God's presence to draw near to him. You see, Christ came to bring us from death into life. That's the good news here. And and to do that, he, he left heaven behind. He came and lived a perfect life, the life that we could never live. He died a terrible sinner's death, a death by torture on the cross. He was buried in a borrowed tomb, but on the third day, he rose in victory over sin and death as our perfect high priest, and he doesn't serve in a tabernacle that doesn't work anymore. He serves in the true tent, in the very throne room of God in heaven. Unlike earthly human priests, he he didn't get there through the blood of bulls and goats. He he got there through his own sacrificed blood, which he shed at Calvary. You see, the blood of goats and bulls, it it worked to sanctify the flesh, but but Jesus' blood, it secures, it takes hold of, it takes possession of our eternal redemption. It redeems us from the price of our sin. It's like taking the voucher, like, like you go, you get a coupon for Chick-fil-A for that free sandwich. It's like taking that and giving it to the, the counter and instead of making you give them money, they give you a sandwich. Only this is so much more. Jesus' blood is that ticket that trades us from our eternal damnation and it gives us Jesus' righteousness instead the tabernacle was filled with elaborate ceremonies acted out by men repeated over and over and over again. But for us with Jesus, it wasn't just a ceremony. It was so much more. When the high priest was at work in the tabernacle, no one got to enter into God's presence except that high priest. And he only got to do it once a year. But with Jesus With with him as our high priest, we are free to come into the presence of God with boldness whenever we want. That's a dramatic change because Jesus as our better high priest, our better sacrifice actually cleanses our sin. He can cleanse our conscience. He fixes the problem because he digs down to the source of our problem, our sin, and he takes care of it once and for all. He paid the price for our sin on the cross and raises us to eternal life in him. He gives us his his righteousness as he reconciles us to God. All that trying to do it ourselves, all that trying to fix it ourselves by our own sheer force of will, those were dead works which led us to dead ends. But Jesus purchased our eternal redemption he purifies our conscience. He takes us from dead works and he brings us in to serve the living God. That's what our author is trying to help us see right here. Back in Japan, there are four paths that lead to the top of Mount Fuji. And of the four, one of those paths is significantly more difficult than the others. One of those paths is, is just exponentially harder. But if you work hard enough, if you try hard enough, if you put forth enough effort, you will get to the top of Mount Fuji on that trail. But when it comes to God, that's, that's not how it works because there's only one path that leads to God. There's only one path that leads to our eternal redemption. All of those other paths that may look like a good idea, you, you might even put forth a whole lot of effort. Eventually, you will come to a dead end. There is only one path that leads to God. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life. And those who find it are few. All those other paths, they, they, they don't work. They're dead ends. But Jesus offers us a path that leads to eternal redemption. Jesus offers us a path that leads us to a clear conscience. Jesus offers us a path that leads us to true and lasting freedom in Him. So so let's abandon those other trails. Stop stop walking on those other trails. They're not going to get you where you're trying to go. And let's walk the path that we're seeing here in Scripture today. Can we do that? Thank you for listening to the preaching podcast from The Point Church. If you would like more information about our church, or if you have any questions, you can find us online at tothepoint.church.